Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Maginot Line and American Politics. The date, September 2020, and this is Bell Avis. But before we get into the content of this podcast, I did want to alert you. Next month, October of 2020, our new book, The Conservative Historian Collected Works, will go on sale. We will have both Kindle editions and hardcover available for sale on Amazon.com. So just go to Amazon and put in your search menu, Conservative Historian Collected Works, and you'll see the documents right there. And now, our podcast. On July 3rd, 1863, after getting rebuffed attempting a flanking maneuver, Confederate General Robert E. Lee decided to smash 15,000 troops at the Union line at Gettysburg, particularly the center of that line. This decision has come down to history as Pickett's charge, even though it had been ordered by Lee and actually overseen by General James Longstreet. It did not work and represented the turning point of the Civil War itself. Like all generals of the age, Lee venerated Napoleon, and one of the Corsican staple maneuvers was to put his French troops into a column and throw them at the enemy, crushing his foes at the point of attack. The problem was that in the intervening 40 years, small and large weapons fire had evolved to the point that massed infantry could not cross open ground without getting gunned down. Despite this lesson, the French of World War I operating almost 50 years after the American Civil War, could not throw away their hero's tactics, and in the war's first days, not only rode into battles on horses, but also wearing bright blue and red uniforms. By contrast, the Germans wore steel gray to blend into their surroundings and present less of a target. Nevertheless, at different times on the Western Front, the Germans, the French, and the British would continue to send massed infantry soldiers into concentrated machine gun fire. In less than 30 days, the, the genuine flower of British youth, some 125,000 soldiers were killed in the Somme's battle, with another 275,000 wounded. In other words, the Somme saw casualties almost 10 times greater than that of the Battle of Gettysburg. It took World War I's horrors, the logical evolution of war into the trench to finally disabuse the generals of using massed infantry attacks against fortified positions. Now, the French learned the lessons of defensive warfare so well that they built the Maginot Line in the years between the world wars. The Maginot Line was a series of fortifications so dense, so impenetrable, that no combination of artillery barrage and infantry no matter how massed, could get through. But just as warfare had evolved in the early 19th century, so with the 20th. The German blitzkrieg, with highly mechanized warfare, simply went around the line. Part of the blitzkrieg was the airplane's evolution from a single-engine, single-pilot craft into a devastating weapon. The best trench in the world is useless if the enemy can simply fly over it. Before we go all anti-French, and really quick, here's a quick French joke. We have a sale on World War II French rifles, 
Never been fired, only dropped once. Okay, I know that was pretty bad. But before we go all anti-French, let's consider this pattern in history. Alexander of Macedon's phalanx beat a Persian army that in and of itself had conquered the entire Near East. Later, that same phalanx lost to the Roman legion about 200 years after Alexander. These infantry legions were unbeatable until Crassus used them against Parthia and their recurved bows. Even the success of Napoleon himself was that he rejected much of the static warfare of the previous 100 years. We can learn from history, but we need to keep an eye out for the right lesson. As the 2020 election evolves, three dates seem paramount on the minds of historically-minded political pundits from both sides, 2016, 1968, and 1972. Though Bernie Sanders did not get the nomination of the party, it instead went to Joe Biden, the fervency of the left has been appeased with a Biden agenda that is actually to the left of his old boss, Barack Obama. And Obama himself was the most leftist president since Franklin Roosevelt. The concern for Democrats is is that they will lose these zealous voters on the left. So more leftism and the choice of Kamala Harris as the running mate. But this particular agenda reminds many of the George McGovern disaster in 1972 when he lost to Richard Nixon in one of the most lopsided elections in American history. When the more moderate Edmund Muskie dropped out of the election, it opened the way for the far-left McGovern to obtain the Democratic Party nomination, and the result was historic. Nixon won 60% of the popular vote. And remember, we're talking about Richard Nixon here. But the Electoral College was even more lopsided. 520 electors versus 17 went to the Republican. It is hard to imagine in 2020. But Nixon, Nixon won California, Illinois, and New York. This is the Republican winning these states. And on cue... There is the curse of George Santayana and is off quoted, quote, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, unquote. Words that have haunted generals, politicians, and historians since he wrote them. 2020 is not 2016. In another piece, we know the differences between Trump's center-right policies, positions actually held by most conservatives. It gets lost in the Trump rhetoric, but his actual governance is not that fundamentally different from the way a, if you will, a President uh, Rubio or a President Jindal or President Walker would have governed. But contrast that, this difference, with the left's socialist agenda. Even the moderate Biden is consistently leaning towards more Sanders, more Warren, more Ocasio-Cortez, and even more Harris-type policies. Even allowing for Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal or pre-Thatcherite Britain, these views represent even new ground. Nothing like the Green New Deal or the nationalization of education was part of the original Roosevelt New Deal. And though he tried to pack the Supreme Court, the atmosphere of 2020 is more conducive to this attempt than it was back in 1937. If enacted these policies would represent a government takeover directly 
or indirectly, of healthcare, energy, finance, education, and labor, not regulation, ownership. It is one thing to choose healthcare on an exchange or to have the government limit drilling. However, it is quite another to eliminate all private health insurance or to see gas prices significantly rise when fracking is not curbed but eliminated or to see your bank loan approved by a bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. and your school's curriculum dictated by the Federal Education Department, the editors at the New York Times, and Nicole Hannah-Jones. Once the suburbanites understand this, it will be a Trump cakewalk, or so the thinking goes. Despite the COVID emergency, this is still the essence of the policy debate, as much as there is one with the derogatory Trump and the semi-conscious Biden. Additionally, as has been pointed out many times before, Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was the had the second lowest rating approvals going into an election. The first was Donald Trump, but the difference came down to this. Donald Trump's base and a hidden group of voters, the ones either the pollsters missed or simply could not publicly advocate for Trump, ended up coming over to him. But Trump will not have that advantage with Hillary Clinton. And as running for the incumbency in a COVID emergency time, he also does not have that kind of wind at his sail, especially in terms of his economic success. 2016 is not 2020. But nor is 2020, 1968, or 1972. A lot of people are making those comparisons to 1968 because in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent riots and looting that have visited many American cities, the concept of law and order is back on the docket. And we know this significantly because Joe Biden, after being quiet about the riots for the better part of two months, came out with an anti-riot, anti-looting speech. Though, significantly, he, he failed to name two key perpetuators of that, including Antifa and some of the Black Lives Matter movements that have perpetuated some of these riots. Nevertheless, Biden's presence on this issue tells you that people are concerned about law and order. And that was exactly what Nixon was talking about in 1968 in the wake of all of the disturbances of the late 1960s, especially as was concerning anti-Vietnam riots, sit-ins, and other displays, and the riots that occurred in cities in the, in the wake of the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. in cities such as Detroit. Nixon talked about the silent majority, and those were the voters who wanted his law and order. And those were the voters who actually came out and voted for him in 1968 and overwhelmingly in 1972. So a little more history here. In 1960, Richard Nixon, a man lacking in charm and extremely weak in retail political skills, narrowly lost to uber-charismatic John F. Kennedy. Four years later, Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat, won a landslide victory over Barry Goldwater. Just eight years after that, Nixon won that landslide victory over McGovern. In only 12 years, the United States electorate swung hard one way and then back again. 
the voters were fluid, impressionable, and open to alternatives. Now remember, contrast those years, those years from 1960 through 1972 with 2020 and the previous 20 years to that. Today, in the past eight elections, a span covering 36 years, no candidate, none, has achieved a landslide victory. Republicans, despite misgivings about Trump's temperament, voted for him en masse. With Hillary Clinton's baggage, a sliver of swing voters in three states, about, let's say, 100,000 people out of 120 million votes cast, went to Trump, giving him the election. A chunk of moderate Democrats voted for Richard Nixon in 1972. They did not come out for Bob Dole. They were not there for George W. Bush, John McCain, or Mitt Romney. They will never come out for Donald Trump. We have to go all the way back to 1984 to find a similar 1964 or a 1972 type landslide. Every election since 1984 has been within 10 points. And even Barack Obama, arguably the most popular president since Reagan, lost to Mitt Romney in an incumbent election by less than four points. This is the electorate today. There will be no 1968 or 1972 overwhelming victories. According to the Pew Center, the Latino population in the United States has increased sixfold since 1970. In 1972, this block of voters, who have tended to be majority Democrats, has grown from 5% of the U.S. population to over 16%. And polls show that these voters are more amenable to the type of policy that the left favors. Trump's immigration policies, whatever its merits, will not make him more amenable to this block. In 1972, China and the Soviet Union were existential threats to this nation, and the United States was fighting communism either directly, as in Vietnam, or indirectly, as in Latin America. Socialism was not an alternative, it was the enemy. Rightly or wrongly, McGovern, with his anti-Vietnam War activism, was seen as too sympathetic to the communists. Again, there is not that foreign policy overhang, that cold warrior kind of mentality that existed back in the days of Nixon. The riots within the cities that perpetuated by the Black Lives Matter protests are certainly alarming to great swaths of the population, similar to the late 1960s, Yet the left has cleverly embedded their socialist agendas, even Black Lives Matter movement itself, to racial inequality. In 1968, a charge of racism would have, unfortunately, been met by agreement in many places. Though this represents progress, today's threat of racism will send the target onto the defensive, trying to disprove the negative. The new anti-racism even suggests an innate element meaning that there is no defense. A robust defense is seen as admittance to bias. The only answer is acquiescence to the doctrine of systematic racism. Again, very different from 1968. Santayana was not incorrect. It is the interpretation of what he was saying that many get wrong. The tank and the weaponization of aircraft were both products of World War I. And it was the British who tried first using mass tanks in 1970 at Cambrai. Yet somehow, it was the Germans 
who recognized the evolution of these weapons and not the French and not really the British. This is not to say we cannot learn from history. The entire point of this blog and this podcast are just that. Instead, the critical decision is to know the right things from history. And one of those things is to ascertain and analyze the facts as they are. Face the brutal facts, as Jim Collins extols in his business book, Good to Great. The point is to avoid a very simple delusion, that history will repeat itself in a way that will make the reader, the historian, or the believer happy. The French were content to fight the last war. History is there to learn from, but not to fight the last battle. Rather, bring intelligence and wisdom for the future battles. We hope you have enjoyed this conservative historian podcast and encourage you to go to www.conservativehistorian.com for more content and keep an eye out on Amazon for our new book, Conservative Historian Collected Works. This is Bell Avis. Thank you for listening.